Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Good morning. Would you grab your copy of God's Word with me this morning? Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. We left off last week at verse 15 is where we finished our time together last week. It was... um, a section that was opening up with the reminder that the message that we have heard from the beginning is to love one another. Most of that section was John just showing us how not to love one another by using the example of Cain, who his works were unrighteous and his brothers were righteous, and he hated that, so he murdered him. It was a bizarre thing, it seemed at first, that John would use that example of how to love somebody is by how not to do it. But we spent time, most of our time last week, speaking of um, the mark of a child of the devil is hatred in the heart, and a mark of the child of God is love. We're going to return to that command of love today. Uh, Most specifically, we're going to look at the transformative power of the love of God. That is the title of today's sermon, is, is Love's Transformative Power. And our time is going to be spent in 1 John chapter 3, specifically verses 16 to 24. Um, But really, now that we're at the end of the chapter, we're going to kind of Uh, zoom out and need to consider everything that we've studied so far in the chapter. So if you would, stand with me one more time as we read the Word of God. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 24. This is the Word of the living God. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 
Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We want to enter into this time in your word, Lord, with reverence and with um, a sense of um, awe because we are reading the words of the living God. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be careless during this time. I pray that we would be thoughtful and prayerful. Lord, I pray that the same spirit that inspired these words would illuminate them to each of us today, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would break hard hearts, that you would um, strengthen weak hearts, and that you would do all of this for the glory of Jesus. And we pray this today in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. By this we know love. Our first major heading today is we're going to consider the love of God given to us. We're really getting that from chapter 3, verse 1, where John said that, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of of God. And this, of course, we know is only possible because what he gave is his only son, Jesus Christ. We saw the love of God given to us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then the love of God that changes us in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And now, from verses 11 to the end of the chapter, we're really seeing the love of God working through us. So first, the love of God was given to us. The love of God changes us. And then the love of God is then working through us. This is the outline of our chapter that we have been studying so far. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Everything else has been downstream from that statement. It's because the Father has given His love to us in sending His Son to die on our behalf, in our stead, uh, bearing the wrath of God for the sins that we have committed. It's because that has happened that now the rest of the chapter is possible. So the rest of this chapter, obedience to this chapter, is possible first because the Father initiated His love towards us, and then because that love is so powerful that it transforms us. That's why our title today is The Transformative Power of Love. Love's Transformative Power. In other words, if this love has not transformed you, you have only heard of the love. It has not come to you yet. It has not come to bear upon your soul yet if it has not transformed you. The Father's love is given to us in the giving of His Son, and the Son's love is made known by the laying down of His life. Here in our section, John is using one of his favorite phrases. He starts off by saying, By this we know. He's been really concerned with the fact that uh, we would know certain things in the writing of this letter. 
a reminder that we have entitled this series, uh, Tested Assurance, and that's coming from chapter 5, verse 13, where John tells us that he's writing this letter so that we may know that we have eternal life, so that we may know that we have eternal life. And so John is very concerned throughout the writing of of this letter that we would know certain things. For me, that is a tremendous comfort. That John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using such emphatic, resolute statements as, by this we know. There's no wiggle room here. There is no room for doubt. There is no, well, that's your view on it. John is saying, no, by this we know. We can know that we can know that we can know that we can know. Often people who are not in the faith ask, well, how do you know that that stuff is real? Well, I know because my Bible tells me so. You remember that old song? And of course, for those who are lost and dead in sin, that will never be a sufficient answer. It will not ever be a sufficient answer because Romans 1 tells us that people who are dead in sin suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They know the truth. Their spirit, their heart convicts them because God has given us all a sense of morality, of His law. But because of sin in our lives, we suppress the truth and we say, no, 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 it couldn't possibly be that way. But I love how sure the Bible speaks. It doesn't leave you doubting. It doesn't leave you unsure of God's love towards you. If you are a child of God, by this you have come to know love that Jesus laid down his life for you. Where we saw in our last section that hate in the heart causes a person to take a life Love in the heart is where you lay down your life. It is sacrificial. It does not sacrifice others. It sacrifices itself. And this was best seen in the life of Christ. Our world has a whole lot of definitions for love. Many would say that you can't truly define love or you can't truly explain What love is, because love is relative. It varies from person to person. I believe it's one of the great strategies of the enemy today is to twist and distort and altogether alter the meaning of love. After all, John will say later in this letter that God is love. God is love. Love. So what better strategy of the enemy could there be than to distort how people view love? Because if your view of love is wrong, then you will never have a right view of God because God is love. And you'll hear that and you will associate that with your version of what love is. And how many times is our version of love the kind of love that never gets in the way of my sin. In today's culture, the greatest sin that you can commit is to offend someone. 
the greatest sin that you can commit that is the most unloving thing is to offend somebody. Where Jesus came and rescued us from our sin as an example, as a demonstration of what love is. Today, our version of love is leave me in my sin. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Don't tell me I need repentance. That is unloving. But our Bible says, by this we know love. That Jesus laid down his life for good people. Does anybody's Bible say that? No, it doesn't. That Jesus laid down his life for people who just are pretty nice, but for the most part, they, they just need a little leg up. No, it says that he gave his life for sinners. So when we change the message, we rob people of salvation. When we change what love is and what it does, we exclude people from the saving power of the gospel. May we never do that here in this church. Today's love teaches that in order to truly love someone, you have to sit idly by as your loved ones engage in any form of sin they desire because you know you can't judge them. And isn't it sad that the main thing that Jesus said would mark his church to the watching world is so distorted beyond reason, is so distorted beyond what the Bible teaches So it's no wonder anymore that we're not able to be distinguished Christians from the world. It's because we have lost the mark for fear of offending. My friends, love offends. Love offends. But never to injure, always to heal. Love will step on your toes but never as a judgment towards you, but as a way to say you're about to fall off a cliff. I stepped on your toes so that you would jump backwards. Love offends, but it always heals. By this, we will know love, that he laid down his life for us. We've seen the greatest example of what love is and how it behaves in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where the world might say that you sit idly by and watch your loved ones perish in their sin, Scripture shows us that Christ did not sit idly by for fear of offending. Christ came and rescued us from our sin. And praise God that he did. We would never truly know love if not for Christ having come into this world. But he did come to take the sins of his people away. He did come to destroy the works of the devil. He did come to lay down his life for the undeserving. Thank God that we could never merit his love. It's critical that we understand the distinction that John makes here. That Jesus laid down his life. This word that that we translate as laid down carries this sense of literally placing something in front of somebody. That I came and set it 
before you. It also has the sense of laying aside your rights or your possessions for the good of someone else in this context. And in this context, he, the possession that he laid aside or laid before us was his own life. The most valuable life that has ever existed on the face of this planet was laid down for the undeserving. That's how we know love. That is how we see love. That is what love does. If we, never, if we ever need to brush up on what love would or would not do, we need look no further than the life of Jesus Christ. Guaranteed, it is exemplified to absolute perfection. And guess what? Jesus was quite offensive. Jesus was so offensive that they wanted to crucify him. Not just did they want to, they did We have this idea today of Jesus as just this vaguely nice person who always holds open the door for you. And maybe that's an aspect of it. Maybe we do hold open doors. But Jesus is always with the intent of saving us from sin. We learn right away from his life that love must cost us something. You see John say, this is how it's done. Now you go do it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're going to look now at the love of God working through us. It's our second major heading today. The love of God working through us. Because never has the love of God come upon a person and changed that person and not caused that person to act. It's true that sanctification is a slow process. It's true that sanctification takes time. There are those who are um, saved and immediately transformed in a miraculous, immediately evident sort of way. And then for the rest of us, we are slowly being sanctified. And it takes faith, and it takes time, and it takes work. But rest assured that the love of God does transform. And rest assured that the evidence of that love of God having come to you is that it is now working through you to the world around you. But most specifically to the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important that we understand this distinction that John is making. He doesn't say that we and we lay down our lives for our neighbor. He says we lay down our lives for the brothers. This is a term this is terminology that means the brothers and sisters in Christ, your spiritual family, your heavenly family. That this is where our highest allegiance lies, is with the family of God, is with our heavenly family, that we lay down our lives for the brothers. We saw Jesus paying our debts upon the cross willingly for the joy set before him. And John is showing us that we ought to do the same thing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now this doesn't mean martyrdom. 
None of us in here are going to go to a cross to die on behalf of anyone because, thank God, we don't need to. Jesus has already done that. So this isn't implying that we ought to die for one another, literally. Obviously, there are contexts where that might apply. But what is the point here is that this is showing us what real love looks like, what God-given love does, and that it costs us something. It is a verb. It moves. It acts. It pours itself out. This word here for love is the preferential love, that we act in the benef- to the benefit of, of our brothers and sisters. And that's further indicated by John saying that we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Now, let's just be honest here. That this is possibly one of the most challenging parts of 1 John that we've come to yet. Is that love must cost us something. That love is sacrificial that love is demonstrated in sacrificing ourselves for brothers and sisters in Christ. This means fellow Christians. This is how near that we are to be to one another. Is that we are all in tandem working at the same time to lay down our lives for the others. But what happens so often is that perhaps you find one in the mix who's doing that, and then you find other people who are criticizing and pointing and saying, you aren't doing enough. You're not loving this way. But what John is writing, the way that John is writing is saying, but what about you? What are you doing? John is writing to us individually as well as corporately. And we ought to be very careful to fight against the flesh because the flesh's desire is to read this and think of everybody else. But a spirit-led mentality is to examine my own life. God, where have I failed? God, how am I exemplifying this? God, I know I don't do this, but I want to love like you. This kind of love works for the good of people who don't deserve it. None of us in here deserve the love of God. None of us in here deserve that Jesus would lay down his life for us. None of us in here deserve to be justified in the eyes of the Father. We're all sinners. We're all condemned, if not for Jesus. But why is it that we so often are stingy to act that way towards brothers and sisters? We make people have to deserve our love. You have to earn my respect. You have to earn my grace. Do you understand what we do in that situation is we say that our judgments are higher than God's. My standard is higher than God's. God can forgive you. I don't. Have you ever heard that before? God forgives. I don't. 
you're putting yourself in the seat of judgment, my friend. That is a dangerous place to be. And it's sad that it so often happens in the church where this should be the most loving, sacrificial place, the place where we are most ready to show each other grace, to say, hey, maybe I misunderstood. I, I probably misunderstood because that's, that's probably not what they meant. They, they probably aren't intentionally doing this. Let me look out for the good of those who might not deserve it. Too often what we find is fighting and arguing and criticizing and gossiping and hating one another, acting just like the rest of the unbelieving world. What John says is, no, the way it should look is how Jesus laid down his life. Do you see what Jesus did? Do you see how he sacrificed himself for those who didn't deserve it? You do that. You do that for one another. The first example that we find of of how it practically works itself out is found here in verse 17. John says that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. That's John's point all throughout chapter 3 is that God's love, when it has been given to you, it transforms you, and then it works through you. If those things are not happening, my friend, it hasn't come to you yet. It doesn't cut you off from the possibility of salvation. But we need to be real and have our eyes open to where we really are so that we are open now for grace to come in and change everything. There has never been a sinner who has outsinned the grace of God. He writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's go back to what he said in 17, that if anyone has the world's goods, John here is referring to those among us who the Lord has blessed financially and material, materially with an abundance. It's so strange that this is in here. Because oftentimes we are led to believe that Christians have to be the poorest people in the world. And I want to be very careful here because I'm not at all a fan of the prosperity gospel. But there are some people who God has gifted with the ability to make an abundance of financial gain. It's the truth. It's the reality. It's not a promise for everyone, and that's clear from this text. Because there are going to be some who don't have the world's goods. And there are going to be some who do have the world's goods. And what John is saying is the first most practical way that you can demonstrate your love is that if your brother or sister is struggling financially, they don't have the world's goods. They don't have shoes. They don't have, you know, their power got shut off, whatever it is. And you shut your heart against them. How are you showing God's love to that person? James says it this way James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Listen how practical that is. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? John says, Don't love in word or talk, but in deed, acting out this love. Now why is this here? Because Christ's love was shown to us in that while we were spiritually poor, needy, and bankrupt, He laid down His life for us that we might have eternal riches. Christ's love was shown to us in that while we were poor, needy, and spiritually bankrupt, He gave everything for us that we might gain eternal riches. John says, this is how you are to be. Do the same thing for one another. The early church in Acts, you'll find that people who owned land and they owned, they had a bunch of material possessions. What were they doing? They were selling it and splitting the money among the brethren because back then there were people who were horrifically poor and broke with no place. And so they were saying, listen, what's mine is yours. Let's all share in what the Lord has blessed us with because we are one family in Jesus Christ. John says, not to love just in word or talk, but in deed. And the first way that you can do this practically It's when you see your brother in need or your sister in need and you have the world's goods, open your heart to them. Don't close your heart as he says. A modern way to put this is don't talk about it, be about it. God's love was given to us, it changes us and then it works through us. Friends, you never know when you will be the answer to someone's prayer. You never know when someone has been praying and they're on their last leg and they are just trusting, holding out in faith for the Lord. And at that moment where He puts it on your heart to see your brother or sister in need, you have an opportunity there to be that person's answered prayer. What a way to strengthen someone's faith. What a way to show the love of Christ among ourselves. But oftentimes, one doesn't take care of another because he or she does not want to see. We notice that John said, if you see your brother or sister in need, but isn't it so much easier to love from a distance when it doesn't cost you anything. But John is showing us that Christian love, brotherly love, love among the brethren is marked by sacrifice. Another example of how to love like this is found in the one another's. Has anyone heard of the one another's? Anyone? Man, I really thought everyone would raise their hands. Just kidding. 
the one another's in Scripture. These are verses that give very practical commands of love in the church. And you'll find this phrase, one another, one another. We call them the one another's. Why? Because there are over 40 verses just in the New Testament referring to the one another's. How to act towards one another. Now, I'm going to belabor this point because it's possible that a person gives a command to two people and he gives one command to this person and another command to this person and they're both obedient by fulfilling their own separate commands that don't ever cross paths. But with the one another's, that one command is given to both people and it is to govern how their relationship with one another works. Are you following me? So these one another verses are very important for our consideration. We're not going to go through all 40 of them today. And everybody said amen. But I can provide that list for you. If anyone would like that, I'd be happy to show you all 40 instances of where this comes up. And they are it's used way more times than that. But these 40 instances are specifically for brothers and sisters in the life of the church. I'm going to run through just a few examples. The first one that we see is right here in verse 23. If you look at it, in verse 23, he says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Some more examples here. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. John 6.43, don't grumble among one another. Romans 12.16 and 15.5, be of the same mind with one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another, and don't repay evil for evil. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Don't complain against one another. James 4.11. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. Serve one another. Galatians 5.13. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. 1 Peter 5 5. Encourage and build up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 11. Most importantly, probably, pray for one another. James 5 16. Again, there are many more verses, but you get the idea. Is that God cares very much about how the life of the church operates. God cares very much about how the inner workings of the church work. We have this idea that he has just left it up to us. You choose how to do church. You choose how to be a Christian. You choose how to treat one another. But we have a myriad of verses in the New Testament alone that are specific to how the church should operate and act even more specifically to one another. The struggle is that we are often so guilty of looking on the other side of the fence 
to see if my brother or sister is being obedient. I remember growing up, uh, it was Jonathan, not me. Um, I was a perfect child. Um, My brother would, oh, it was me, okay? We would look for opportunities to be disobedient based off of what the other person was doing. Well, he's not listening. Why do I have to? Why am I getting in trouble? Well, well, he's not listening. Why am I getting in trouble? Why are you coming at me? And isn't that exactly how we are in the church? Well, he's not being obedient. Well, she's not being obedient. Well, they're not doing it. Why should I? Oh, they want to come and talk to me about that. Well, they're not even doing it. Isn't that exactly what we hear so often in the church? And John is saying, don't you dare be like that. Don't you dare be like Cain, who hated his brother because his own works were unrighteous and his brothers were righteous. Don't you dare be that way. You love, you lay down your life for those who are not deserving. I know this is a tall task, but aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus does not love us the way that we love other Christians? It shouldn't be that way, though. We should exemplify this type of love. Granted, imperfectly, because we are flawed and we are sinful. But we should exemplify this kind of love towards one another. But thank God that Jesus loves us first and didn't wait until we could merit or deserve his love. He didn't wait for us to shape up before he decided to love us. He didn't wait for you to be lovable He didn't wait. He came to you first and loved you in the midst of the worst of your sin and said, you're mine now. He loved you while you were quite unlovable. And that's how we should be. This is exactly how we should be with one another. I said a bit ago that this is one of the most challenging texts that I've had to prepare for yet. And not because of its theological profundity, but because of the heart-piercing practicality. Because how often are we guilty, myself included, of loving people when it's convenient, loving people on our own terms? My friends, none of us here love perfectly. And if we're not careful, we can hear these texts and consider and examine our lives very carefully and fall into a sea of depression because we start to see how far away from the standard we are, how far away from modeling this in our lives we are. And it's very easy to be crushed under the weight of that and then even to begin to question your own salvation. And this is why I love texts like this. Let's look here at the assurance that we have. The assurance that we have. 
By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. There are those among us who think it an absurd thing to examine themselves and test themselves to see if they're in the faith, but are quite happy to examine other, everyone else. Then there are those among us who are our own worst critics. We struggle not with judging and condemning others, but judging and condemning ourselves. There are times, to be sure, when our heart's condemnation is just, Meaning, sometimes our heart condemns us when we are in sin that we need to repent of. In that moment, your heart is just in condemning you of these things. Especially if those are unforgiven, unrepentant sins. But then there are times when our heart condemns us unjustly. Whether it be the enemy whispering doubt into your heart, or your own heart casting doubt, this can be so joy and life draining. But what's so interesting about the word condemn here is that it means to know or observe wrongdoing with disapproval or condemnation. To observe wrongdoing. In other words, your heart sees what you do. Your heart knows where you've been, the thoughts that you have thought, the opportunities that you've squandered, the times when you saw your brother or sister in need and you closed your heart against them. Your heart sees all of these things and you come to a text like this and your heart says you are condemned because you are not obeying this. And what does John say? When our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God knows everything. In other words, when you were appointed unto salvation, every last sin that you would ever commit was already known. You were chosen unto salvation not because you were so good, Our heart condemns us because we believe that we will be righteous enough to earn God's love. But what we must remember is that God's love is greater than any condemnation your heart could rain on yourself. God's love, God's grace towards you is greater than a lifetime of sin. And for the child of God, this is not a license to sin. For a true child of God, this is an opportunity to fall on Christ in faith and worship. And say, if your love is that great, you can have everything. If your grace is really this wonderful, I am yours. If your mercy is really that unfathomable, I'm done with my sin. I don't want it anymore. Because it could never do what you do in my heart. It could never fulfill me the way that you fulfill me. When our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Christians throughout history have always had seasons of wrestling with the assurance of salvation. 
But child of God, when your heart condemns you, remind yourself that God is greater than your heart. That God knows everything. And he chose you despite you. He loves you all because of his own free will of choice. He chooses to love the unlovable. He didn't love you because you were so lovable. Therefore, whenever you mess up, you now squander his love. He chose you at the worst possible moment in your life. Loved you then. And he loves you still. John goes on to talk about the assurance that we can have that our prayers will be answered. This happens, he says, because we are keeping his commandments. Namely, to believe in the name of the Son of Jesus, the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. The call of Christ to all men at all times is to believe in the name of Jesus. He came in the flesh, lived a righteous life, died on a cross, bearing your sins, dying under the wrath of God, the full measure of God's wrath that was meant for you. And this is a display of his love towards you. And his call for you today is to repent of your sin. Have faith in that perfect work. And the scriptures say that you will be saved. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for showing your great love towards us through sending your son. We thank you for the display of perfect love in the laying down of your life. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to exemplify that in our lives, in the life of this church, that people would be able to distinguish the way that we love one another from the way that the world says to love. I pray that you would fill us with an assurance of salvation for those of us who are true children of God, that we would walk out of here knowing that God is greater than my heart and he knows all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.